Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. The Director's Cut is now available on Spotify, so please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Karen Kusama's new drama, Destroyer. The film stars Nicole Kidman as LAPD detective Aaron Bell, whose undercover assignment when she was a young cop, the infiltration of a gang in the California desert, ended tragically. When the leader of that gang reemerges years later, she seeks to finally lay to rest her personal demons from that case. In addition to Destroyer, Ms. Kusama's credits include the feature films The Invitation, Jennifer's Body, Eon Flux, and episodes of the television series Halt and Catch Fire, Billions, and Casual. In 2000, she took home the Sundance Film Festival Directing Award for her debut feature, Girl Fight. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Ms. Kusama spoke with director Christopher Nolan about filming Destroyer. During their conversation, Ms. Kusama discusses reworking the genre conventions of the revenge movie, her desire for most of the movie to have a pressure-cooking feeling to it, and how she worked with Nicole Kidman to define Aaron Bell as a character. Thank you. Um, So, let's talk genre um, and the use of of genre, because for me, uh, I'm a big fan Mm -hmm. of of the genre, Mm -hmm. and a a very big fan of what what you've done with it here. And, And for me, the best examples of the use of genre are when they reflect on or allow you to extrapolate from your own human experience. Mm -hmm. And the second time I watched the film, to me, is a film about middle age. (laughs) Very much a film about middle age. That's interesting. And and about regret. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just wanted to to let you speak a little bit about genre and the use of of genre tropes. Well, to your first uh, observation, I think you're really right, because I've often said that when I think about the title of the film, which is somewhat ambiguous, I I often say, well, I think the biggest destroyer of the movie is time Um, and um, how time can really do a number on some of us if we're living in regret or shame or guilt. And in terms of genre, I feel feel like what that, what, what the best of action movies, horror films, crime thrillers, science fiction can give us is is a is a is a kind of two-pronged approach one that does care about an experience of pleasure as you're watching the movie like a sense of being surprised being on the edge of your seat being um emotionally engaged but because genre i think is often um considered a disreputable form there's a lot of room to 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 actually invest the work with ideas and to actually explore um, things that I don't know how you explore in a in a kind of more I want to say highbrow context mm-hmm. if that makes sense and so you know like for me the, the concept of this woman's rage and shame I don't know how else I don't I wouldn't know how to attack it without 
the the architecture of a genre movie? Well, I think yeah. I mean, the, my take on it is that the conventions give you universality, mm-hmm. so we can all sit. People of different ages, people with very different backgrounds, could sit and watch Aaron Bell's experience, mm-hmm. and because of the the drama, you know, because of the the exaggeration, if you like, of a human experience, they can. Uh, sort of go on that on that journey with her, which is so much about guilt and regret and um, being a parent as well. Oh yeah, yeah. And I also think genre in my in, in when I think about the films I love that are considered genre movies, um, and 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 a lot of them end up falling in that seventies era. You know, Dog Day Afternoon or mm-hmm. Clute, or I would even call Taxi Driver a, a genre movie. But in when I think about those movies, I think about how they um, they they can operate as character studies, but the way they get to do that is by often putting an ordinary person, a somewhat ordinary person. You know, it's mm. not like genre movies aren't about the kings and queens. You know, in a yeah. funny way, so it it allows for that the conventions you're talking about to be more relatable, I think, because they're hitting directly into us as opposed to sort of living in a co- totally rarefied area. Yeah, no, they're about marginal people yeah. and, and flawed people. And for me, the, the fascination of the film, um, because it, it plays so elegantly, I think, into and with those those devices and those conventions. Um, and in the best possible way, I didn't really notice the fact that it was a female protagonist mm-hmm. until the second time I watched the film. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, I noticed it was a female protagonist right, at some point. Right, <laughs> right, right. But right. Um, the significance of it to me the second time around was that I realized that these films, whilst Nicole Kidman's performance, which I think is really incredible in the film, it achieves iconic status, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. it doesn't... Um, romanticize her dysfunction if she right. were a man when it's the male figure at the center of one of these stories the dysfunction is romanticized mm-hmm. and i think very much of the moment in the bar that i wanted to ask you about where she pulls her badge and no one cares yeah. no one yeah. gives a damn you know and that's very different to yeah. the way that scene normally plays in in this, this genre. it's true and you know phil and matt who who wrote the script and and um who i've collaborated with now three times um and they are uh, the screenwriters and producers on the movie as well, they talk about scenes like that as having a particularly interesting charge when your protagonist is female because there ha- there, there's sort of question hanging in the air, like is she is she disrespected because she's just become so problematic at her job or is she disrespected because of that and the fact that she is female it's harder to kind of uh wade through that question it kind of deepens it in in their opinion well i think that i think they're right but i think they're they're right not to draw attention to it and in the way you present it 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 just plays out very much as the appropriate and natural character moment and it's really only on, as I say, a second viewing or reflection that I thought, oh, there's another version with a male protagonist where that's the moment where despite his alcoholism and dysfunction, he gets the badge out and exerts some kind of power in some kind of glamorous way. Right. And, and she's ignored, essentially, or mocked right. even. Well, and it's funny because 
I think a big trope of a lot of crime thrillers is the concept of vengeance itself. And I'm actually, um, as I get older, especially really recognizing that vengeance doesn't it doesn't really hold any moral weight for me. I can't, I can't get behind it. Um, as I get older, it's harder for me to justify watching, you know, a character's odyssey into revenge without feeling a sense of consequence and a sense of, um, the damage that that internally must do. And so that, that's another thing I think that by having a female protagonist, maybe for me, it became much more stark, that just the notion of the vengeance movie in and of itself is kind of dissatisfying to me. Well, it's an interesting setup because, yeah, I mean, the moment where she confronts Silas at the end, it does not feel like uh, satisfying revenge in an emotional sense. Um, and that feels very, very purposeful in the film. You feel, I felt at the end, that in, in a in a very clear sense, she was her own antagonist. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that because the, I was hoping as we were putting the movie together in post, um, there were a lot of reasons that the, that scene was not as quite as momentous as one might expect it to be. Mm -hmm. um, some of them intentional and like a lot of things in movies, some of them happy or unhappy surprises. And um, for me, what I had noticed over the course of the film, and I had always said to Nicole while we were shooting, was that every single person she meets across this sort of odyssey of L.A. is sort of like a mirror looking back at her. And the, the sort of final mirror is mm. the so-called antagonist himself. And really what we've come to understand in the course of the film is that she is the architect of her destruction. She is the problem of her own life. Mm. And so I, I realized I can't, I can't give him that much significance because in the end it's much more about her meeting her own ability to do something so amoral, yeah. Um, you know? Yeah, very much. I mean, yes, finding him, killing him really doesn't achieve anything it's a very uh, it's it's very uh, inward looking in, in that sense you know the, the more she investigates the more it goes into herself which I think once again is a is a great uh, it, it's a great asset of the genre that, mm -hmm. that you're dealing with um, in terms of influences I mean I, f I feel that in a way you know as we're talking about uh, the scene in the bar where she's more or less ignored, you know, her, her supposed power as a cop, those kind of things. They relate to me almost a little more to the literary version of the genre. You know, I'm thinking of Jim Thompson sure. and writers like that. In the movie version, they tended to make that a little more palatable. It wasn't quite as, as bleak somehow. Yes. So talk, if you would, a little bit about uh, the literary influences as well as the, the cinematic influences. I feel a lot of... 1980s movies as well, a lot of Catherine Bigelow and, yep. and great filmmakers like that in terms of its approach to genre action, the sort of sun-drenched mm -hmm. L.A. noir. I mean, I think we were drawing from a lot of influences. And, and as I mentioned, for me, Alan Pakula is a, is a you know, sort of um, a person I, whose work I find I study pretty um, regularly. Um, but... Also, I would say this sort of tradition of um, uh, politically restless and morally ambiguous 
crime films. I think of movies like um, Cutter's Way and um, to some degree To Live and Die in L.A., though yeah. though for me that movie is particularly important because of Robbie Mueller's cinematography and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm awed by it. But, um, and so I, and I do think that there is a kind of um, James Elroy sort of ugliness <laughs> that, that, lands in this movie. Um, but I think we were also trying to find a kind of singular character portrait that probably was born more out of movies like Taxi Driver or Woman Under the Influence. Well, that's fascinating to talk about Woman Under the Influence. I mean, I because when I try to think of precedent for, for the character... I couldn't come up with any, which is fabulous. I mean, I could come up with a lot of male protagonists who aren't the same, but perform the same function within uh, the genre. But I I think there's a very uh, specific sense in which it is unprecedented. I really couldn't think of uh, an example of of that kind of damaged character, that kind of self-destructive character in a a crime film like Mm -hmm. that, uh, who is a mother and dealing with those things as as well. And that, that had a certainly for a middle-aged person, had a very, very universal well, and, uh, appeal. And I think what you had originally brought up about the concept of middle age, uh, you know, um, I think movies often and culture generally is so obsessed with youth mm. that uh, I hope, I hope if you, if you engage with this movie, you find it a kind of penetrating study of a middle-aged person and it maybe part of it is that we've seen older guys. We've seen Danny Glover say, "I'm too old for this," sh-, and we we accept that as as like funny and true. Yeah. But there's something about you know seeing this character not even able to <laughs> to articulate it, but but really living in it, you know, um, yeah. and and really um, ground down by her own choices. Well, and that's sort of what I mean about not glamorizing the dysfunction because. She's, you don't shy away from the reality of that, of what a, you know, a stumbling drunk you know, person in that position would, would be, a, how people would, would react to that, as opposed to the sort of, you know, if, if you will, the romanticized version. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, your process with Nicole Kidman? And particularly with regard, I mean, well, interestingly, it, it's the whole cast, really, because it is, yes, it's a portrait of a, of a very damaged middle-aged woman, but every character has their... Uh, from their the past game. and they present. They have their past and present, and they're, they're beautifully and, and very clearly presented uh, from a directorial point of view, from a visual and cinematic graphic point of view, but also the, the characters, the way they move, the way they talk, their appearance. Um, so how, how did you guys approach that? Um, I started with really elemental kind of influences, um, there happened, a friend of mine happened to, I was talking about coyotes and the way that they move. And a friend of mine who lives in Silver Lake happened to notice that there was on the Silver Lake, like local news, a story about a a pack of coyotes that were sort of trapped in the Silver Lake reservoir. And there was this drone footage watching them sort of run through the reservoir and, and, um, peel off from one another and then reconnect. And, it was the most fascinating footage to me. And I, I just felt like this is actually the first thing I'll probably send to Nicole. That's just completely like 
some spiritual thread. It's not, it's not a real piece of information. But I think for me, this idea of like animals breaking down over time, you know, living things, that was a, you know, in the case of somebody like Tatiana Maslani, who plays Petra, she was just studying like case histories of the long-term effects of uh, methamphetamine abuse. Mm. And, and it really was like a, a haunting experience and seeing a person's body and brain break down almost before your very eyes. And so I think we, we talked a lot about like spiritual degradation and what that does to you, you know, what that does Mm. to how you move and how you talk and how you think, you know, and, um, particularly with bell and Petra, I think those two characters are the most, um, they fall the hardest. Yeah, very much. I mean, I, I was fascinated by the way Erin uh, Bell, by the way she moves, that, that particular walk. Was that a surprise to you when she walked on set the first day? <laughs> you know, um, Nicole herself um, loves to make fun of how she walks and runs, and I, I'm always just like, you're, you're a little bit crazy for doing that. But, but she, what she, I think, did was take... I might have said, a, I'm, I literally might have told her a story of a time in my life when people, friends would stop me and say, why are you limping? And I would say, I don't think I am limping. And then they'd say, oh, but you are. And I, I think like, I think I told her that story and she absorbed it with the same, you know, sort of um, intensity that she would absorb the words on the page. And she just brought this like, I want to say kind of broken cowboy gate. Mm. We talked a lot about cowboy stories. And even though the movie's not a Western, it mm. also has this kind of lone wolf paradigm that you could apply to a Western or find in a Western. And so I think that kind of thing of just um, being bent by the habits of your life, she just found it in her walk. And that helped define the whole thing. Yeah, but without the swagger. I mean, it's interesting because she... The way she moves, you f- you, there's this awkwardness to it that you feel she just can't function in the environment. You know, she doesn't control the environment the way a swaggering cowboy does. She totally. seems at the mercy of it, like she's going to totally over something. Well, and also she's in pain, and and mm-hmm. because in the case of this film, the beginning is actually the end. Mm. We had to set that physicality pretty quickly, um, mm. and then dial it back by degrees so that we don't feel like as an audience, we're suddenly looking at a different character in a different Mm -hmm. physical state. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like um, so much of the film, that's very carefully and precisely plotted out. And and there are, there are many, many uh, very specific visual details in the film that are very, very tightly controlled in the way you present them. I mean, I was talking earlier about the, flashbacks you have to individual characters to sort of remind you or connect right. who they are. And those are not edit suite decisions. They're very clearly, mm-hmm. precisely plotted out with particular dolly moves and particular lighting cues yeah. and so forth. Um, talk a little bit about your process and, and how, you know, I mean, as a director watching it, as another filmmaker watching it, I see things that are treacherous on the page, I would imagine. Things like you see the back of her neck and there are, faint scars of the same tattoo that's mm-hmm. on the body. And when, as a director, when I read something like that in the script, I'm like, well, how are we going to have it there but not there? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a very precise target that you're hitting on many of the visual cues in this film. It's really true uh, that, and, and, and I think 
Oftentimes, the things that are most mysterious to grasp but would be most helpful to grasp are often also the hardest things to put up on film. And so, like, just something as simple as that tattoo or the remnant of it um, was a huge just technical makeup challenge because it couldn't look... I mean, basically, our idea was, you know, circa 2002... This needs to look like what that tattoo removal technology looked like, which was actually just scarification of a of a sort. Mm. So we were working toward that, but it just um, it was just you know, I felt like this movie is filled with enough detail that my hope is that if if you were engaged in it, it would bear a second look, mm. um, just to sort of understand the stuff you missed because it's quite, quite dense. And that was something on the page. Like, will we just be able to power through the facts of this script? You know? Yeah. Well, I I mean, it's beautifully presented and it, and it does absolutely reward a second viewing. Um, But I think, you know, and and my question is almost more about that first viewing because Mm -hmm. there are things that, that the, in this genre, there are so many sort of slippery ambiguities mm-hmm. or things that you can miss. I mean, it's just things like when Silas wearing the mask gets out of the van and crosses the street. There's just enough of his hair out the bottom of his hat that you right. you connect him. Um, how are you making those choices? How are you are you studying the script on the day, talking to the actors, leaving it to them? Or, or? I'm pretty um, because because I usually I've found that I work best in situations where I don't have enough time or money. Um, and I'm not sure why I work best in that way, but it somehow makes me the most, um, prepared filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And so that was the kind of detail we just couldn't leave to chance. She couldn't, she couldn't guess that that was Silas. We had to feel Mm -hmm. like she understands now that she has actually been unwittingly following her Mm -hmm. target, you know, um, thinking she's just following a key to it. And, um, and and so, for instance, something like the hair was incredibly important, and it meant we had to work out his look in the past, his look in the present as a bank robber, and then understand that as the present-day guy, he actually wears a wig. Like, there were a lot of details that we had to sort of um, map out long before we started shooting. And some of those are in the script, and then some of those are you extrapolating from... Yeah, yeah. Well, because the funny thing about bank bank robberies is that, you know, you're mostly... It's sensible to wear a mask. And so then all of a sudden I'm realizing, oh, right, everybody's got masks on their face. So you have to really be um, thinking about what what identifies people. Well, know? and that's the other thing. I mean, in, in the, the final bank heist, the second time I watched it, I realized, oh, Chris has the two eye holes so that you can distinguish his close-up from yeah. Silas's. And it's, it's just so beautifully done. It's so careful. And those are the kind of things that, you know, I, I personally miss all the time as I'm shooting and then regret and think, oh, if we'd done this, we'd done that. And I'm sure I mean, you I have definitely your missed so many things. We yeah, all don't do. We always wrong. do. But there are so but there are so many there that I, I know that I would have missed that are there and they're correct and and you know they, they give you exactly the right information at the right time. And I think that's 
it's just a very difficult thing to do, and I think you do it so well in here. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, talk about um, production a little bit, locations. I mean, it's it's a film about, as we say, sort of marginal people, the way that the genre works best. And the locations feel wonderfully marginal as well. I mean, they're really on the fringes of things, even when, you know, you get near Dodger Stadium, but not quite, you know, he's right. just looking at it. Right. But all those other places, you never feel, it, it, it's one of the most L.A. films mm -hmm. in, that, in that great tradition. And yet you, you almost never feel like you're, you're getting to anywhere that anyone who Knows. doesn't live here would know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... Um that was always just a goal that we find locations that hadn't been quite yet, you know, filmed to death. And, um, we had the advantage of working with a, a brilliant location manager who, who loves LA. I mean, who just, mm. and who loves the, the, the task of finding new places in LA. And I think one of the things that's just most, you know, interesting to me about scouting in a city like this is, it is so ethnically diverse. There are so many just mini cities of mm. Filipinos and Chinese people and, you know, Armenians and, you know, like it, it, it's a, it's just such a rich, you know, place to live. And I just felt like this was an opportunity to actually see the way and the areas in which most people live. Mm. Did you have access to the locations ahead of time or were you, I would imagine you would have had to be very much thinking on your feet and swapping locations at the last minute. Or? There was a lot of that. Um, there were a couple of places that I just prayed to God we would, we would actually land. And, and so for instance, like that spit of land that is a, is an abandoned park actually called Victory Grove um, in Echo Park that, it's a great that, name. That, great name for it. Oh, totally. But it's yeah. it's you know just sort of this abused now, just like landing pad for for people in desperate straits. Basically, mm. it's a lot of hypodermic needles and you know doll heads. It's very frightening, <laughs> kind of weird environment. But when you get up to the top of that ridge, sure enough, there was Dodger Stadium on one side and the downtown skyline on the other side, and it did feel like such a surprising gem, you know, like this beautiful oasis in chaos. Mm. And um, that was the kind of location where I just felt like we have to find that 12 weeks before I start shooting. So the idea mm. was always that our location manager was going to come on a lot earlier than the rest of the official prep would start. Oh, before, really, before you had other department heads on? Really yeah, later. yeah. I, I just, I feel like with this movie where we knew every single place we were shooting was going to be an actual location, mm. including all those places out in the desert, I just, I, I just don't know how you can make a movie at an aggressive budget mm. without doing that planning. It's just, it's just money well spent. Well, that probably somewhat answers my next question, which is, you know, Clearly, from what you've said, you're having to shoot very fast. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of us, that would immediately suggest a sort of loose style. Uh -huh. And the film is not in any way loose in its style. It's very, very tightly controlled. Mm -hmm. I found particularly watching it the second time, the use of slow motion, mm -hmm. particular camera angles and all the rest, it feels very precise, very controlled. Um, and how do you execute that on such a tight schedule with, with such, you know, 
complex um, performances I, as well. Yeah, I think for me it's all about dynamics. I mean, it's all about um, a question of the the emotional dynamics in the scene, but then also how how a scene lives like in the larger shape of the whole movie. And I just found that for most of this movie, it should have a little bit of a pressure cooker feeling. And I, I you know, a wilder, looser style, I just don't think really um, benefits that, that, you know, paradigm. And so I just, I was just always saying to people like, just always get the dolly ready, you know, like let's right. just, I, I just, I kind of feel like um, the notion of control is something that is, I'm trying to find the dynamics of in the filmmaking. Like at what point do we need to break out of composed controlled movements? And at what point do we need to feel like we're, we don't know what we're about to see because the camera is kind of catching up, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, all I can do is hope that I've picked the right spots, but, um, I think I try to think about that stuff before I'm shooting, but then as I'm on set feeling, is it working? Like, mm-hmm. you know, when you are watching a performance and looking at the monitor or just not feeling it, that's, I think, something I had to pay extra close attention to. Because if something wasn't working, I had to deal with it really quickly, much more quickly than I would have if I'd had time to kind of, you know, noodle around and yeah. explore how bad this idea was. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So are you, are you uh, how do you incorporate rehearsal with the actors into that? Are you doing that before you go to the location? Are you blocking it, rehearsing and blocking in the morning? Or? So many of our locations were so specific on a time level um, that we often had to just arrive at set rehearse in the morning, send everyone into hair and makeup while we set up. It was, it was pretty fast in that regard. Mm -hmm. Nicole is not, she didn't want to over rehearse in this case. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, whereas a movie like the invitation I rehearsed for, you know, two straight days, just getting from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. So Mm -hmm. I understood all of its geography. It was in one house. This movie felt like we could perhaps live a little bit with the, the, the first take being a rehearsal, essentially. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, I think, you know, the results speak for themselves. Um, we better wrap it up there, but I think it's a really remarkable film and you've done an incredible job with it. So thank you for coming to. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and a, if you'd like to hear more, You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming weeks as awards season continues, including Q&As from directors Peter Hedges, Adam McKay, and Anne Fletcher, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.